I, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservation, continuing on with the General, General George Washington. Official Entry of France into the American Revolution France was particularly impressed with Washington's stunning victory at Saratoga against the formidable General Johnny Burgoyne. Many of the French looked upon the American struggle as a mirror of their own conflicts to achieve more representation in the workings of their own government. In 1778, France and America signed the Treaty of Alliance. They immediately sent ships, soldiers, and a number of capable admirals to help. The Battle of Monmouth, 1778. This was the last battle of the Northern Campaign in the American Revolution, and it took place in Monmouth County in the approximate center of the colony. Washington appointed General Charles Lee to command the advance forces to make a stand against the British troops in the area. Lee, however, refused the command, saying that he felt that the battle plans Washington drew up wouldn't be successful. Washington then planned on giving the assignment to Lafayette. Once Lee heard that, he changed his mind and assumed command. When Lee reached Monmouth, he organized a haphazard formation. After just fighting several hours in the, heart, in the heat of June, Lee called for a retreat. General Nathaniel Green and Washington were close by. As he was approaching the area, Washington came upon Lee and his men fleeing from the English. He was absolutely furious. Washington had been having trouble with the augmented Lee before, but when Lee heatedly argued with Washington about the retreat, he was relieved of command and sent to the back of the line. Washington then took over Lee's troops and called out to the soldiers, Stand fast, my boys, and receive the enemy. The southern troops are advancing to support you. There was a sound of courage and determination in Washington's voice, and the Continental soldiers rallied. Washington was then joined by the South by Lord Sterling, Anthony Wayne, Henry Knox, and Lafayette. The British and Americans fought in the hot summer sun for an entire day. Wayne's regiment, regimental division was defeated, and the British under Cornwallis attempted twice to assault the other American forces, but were repelled. Then night fell. Washington wanted to resume the battle the following day, but the British had retreated in order to move south. Although it appeared to be a victory for the Continental troops, historians indicate it was a tactical draw, most likely due to the fact that the reported casualties were about equal. Because Washington had so few provisions, Lafayette returned to France to secure more money, ships, supplies, and equipment to help out. New York frozen. During the winter of 1778 to 1779, the entire harbor of New York was frozen over. The British, who had left Philadelphia, moved back into New York City. General Benedict Arnold was then put in charge of the defending Philadelphia in case of the British return. The Continental troops wintered in Valley Forge again, but Washington made plans to move some troops down south when he got word that the British General Charles Cornwallis was nearing Charleston, South Carolina. There were also British naval forces offshore, which he needed to watch. Washington felt he had to remain near New York to deal with British regiments under Sir Henry Clinton, while he waited for Lafayette's return of reinforcements. What he did not know was the fact that Clinton had gone down south, 
leaving a garrison in New York under the control of Hessian commander Wilhelm von Kossenbaum. When more supplies arrived, Washington had to send some of his troops down south to deal with the British troops under Cornwallis. Having already arrived from New York, though, General Henry Clinton and his English troops were entering Charleston. Benjamin Lincoln, a North Carolinian militia officer, presented a courageous defense. However, he was unable to expel them because he only had 6,000 troops. The English had more than double the amount. Following Lincoln's defeat, the British troops laid siege to Charleston. Lafayette returns in 1780. Washington, who had been stymied due to the serious lack of provisions, was delighted upon Lafayette's return. Lafayette brought back a lot of supplies along with naval forces and artillery. He then conferred with Washington, who was anxious to move toward New York, but was likewise concerned about the British down south. Lafayette now had the command of the French Navy and told Washington he would have Admiral de Barris sail down the east coast from Newport, Rhode Island. Washington met with Lafayette and one of the French commanders, Comte Jean-Baptiste de Rochambeau, to discuss his plans. Rochambeau suggested that Lafayette Washington and he attacked the British down south instead of in New York. Because the French had ships under Admiral de Grasse in the West Indies and could be called upon to assist, de Grasse could bring 24 warships, 3,200 soldiers, siege equipment, and a substantial amount of money. He only had a limited amount of time, though, as he had to return to the West Indies. Washington agreed and it was also decided that Yorktown, Virginia, would be the best area to engage Cornwallis because of its more accessible harbor. Then he appointed one of his other commanders to man a garrison in New York. Intelligence Operations In late 1778, Washington formed the Culper Ring, which was commissioned as an intelligence operation. It was under the leadership of Colonel Benjamin Talmadge. Under his command, the Culper Intelligence Ring discovered several pending plots over two years' time. Number one, a plan to thwart the French general de Rochambeau as he was taking his forces south. The outcome, de Rochambeau circumvented the British forces along the route. Number two, a plot concocted by the British spy Major Andre to help the British take control of West Point. Outcome. Major Andre was arrested in New York, and later he was hung. Number three. The treachery of the American General Benedict Arnold, who had left his post in Philadelphia, betrayed the American cause, and had plans to seize West Point for the British. Outcome. An interstate hunt was initiated to locate and arrest him. Number four. A plot to divide Washington's forces in Connecticut. The outcome. The Connecticut regiments were reorganized and placed in a defensive position around New York. Number five. A plan to counterfeit continental currency. Outcome. The Continental Congress discontinued the use of continental dollars. Loyal soldier. Just just prior to moving south, Washington leaked some misinformation to the enemy, indicating that 
Franco-American forces intended to attack at the New York Harbor. Washington contacted a Baptist clergyman, Mr. Montagaya, a volunteer who was in northern New Jersey, and ordered him to deliver a letter to the colonial troops who manned Fort Nonsense in Morristown. Washington instructed the young soldier to travel through the pass in the Rampo Mountains in, at New Jersey's northern border and take the route to Morristown. But I shall be taken if I go through the pass, he told Washington. Washington stamped his foot emphatically and firmly said to him, Your duty, young man, is not to talk, but to obey. Montaguay did as he was told, and, as he predicted, was captured by the British patrol. Once he was jailed in New York, he realized the purpose for Washington's orders. In that missive was a fictional plan for the Continental Army to attack New York. The ruse worked well. Once the English came into possession of the letter, they reinforced their troops in the north and stayed there. Unaware that Washington, Lafayette, and de Rochambeau, along with the French fleets, were going to Yorktown in Virginia. Generally, the British treated colonial prisoners humanely, so Washington sent a letter on, stressing the fact that his messenger, Montaguin, should be treated decently. Montaguin was released the following year and lived to tell his story. The Siege of Yorktown, the British Surrender, 1780-1781. through 1781. The notorious American trader, Benedict Arnold, suddenly showed up in Virginia and raided the port city of Richmond. He was going to receive more British reinforcements, a fact that really alarmed Washington. Washington knew Arnold had been an excellent strategist, so he attempted to get some French naval forces to relocate to Richmond and relieve that port, when he could get any naval forces to intervene. Washington asked Lafayette to interfere. Once Benedict Arnold heard that the mighty Lafayette was approaching with a Franco-American army, he and his accompanying general, William Phillips, withdrew. General Cornwallis was in, the south, was in South Carolina at this point. At the Battle of Guilford Courthouse in Greensboro, he defeated the American forces under Nathaniel Greene. However, it was a paratic victory. The British lost nearly 100 men and 400 were wounded. Fever raged through the British forces and reduced Cornwallis' overall effective fighting force to slightly more than a 1,000. So he was delayed as he had to wait for reinforcements from the English allies. In the meantime, Rochambeau with his troops, over 5,000 men, and Washington's men marched 680 miles from New Jersey to Yorktown in 1781. When the American soldiers reached Maryland, there was a problem. The colonial forces halted their march and demanded to be paid in gold and silver. The continental dollar had collapsed because of the British counterfeiting scheme discovered by Washington's intelligence unit in 1779. Unfortunately, the Congress had failed to rectify the situation right away. Washington understood the dilemma felt by the soldiers whose service he respected and admired. De Rochambeau was generously extended a loan to Washington consisting of a huge cache of Spanish gold coins. Washington graciously accepted it and paid his soldiers in, in token. Seeing this remarkable demonstration of fairness on Washington's part, both the French and American troops respected Washington even more as a leader. 
As the naval plan unfolded, Admiral de Grasse and his French fleet were already arriving from the West Indies. At the end of the summer of 1781, he reached the Chesapeake Bay with his equipment and troops. The French fleet under Admiral de Barris was speedily handling south from Rhode Island as planned. Once the British got word of that move, they suddenly realized that the theater of operation wasn't New York, but down south. In a panic, they sent Admiral Graves and his British fleet there, but it was too late for their ground troops to go to Virginia. Washington, de Rochambeau, and Lafayette, and the naval forces were far too ahead. Once Graves' fleet reached the Chesapeake Bay, he found that de Grasse's French fleet blockading the harbor. In a fruitless effort, he attempted to break the blockade, but was outnumbered and outgunned. General Cornwallis called upon the military leaders in the South to join his troops at Yorktown. By the time the two enemy forces met, Cornwallis had 9,000 troops and Washington had about 18,000. Both sides feverishly built trenches and redoubts all over the area and put their artillery in place. Most of the American fortifications were built on a moonless night, which to the surprise of British troops at daylight, the British tended to expect action during the daytime only. Gunfire erupted on both sides. The Continental troops were in the trenches, on the ground and on the hills. Cannon fire thundered across all of the farms and hills outside Yorktown. By the evening of October 14th, the Americans launched a full-scale attack on the hastily constructed British garrison there. The commander of the garrison, Major Campbell, was forced to surrender, and the initial engagement was lost most of its men. The English were getting desperate and sabotaged the American cannons. However, these guns were repaired and at a rapid pace. Cornwallis was almost successful at one of the redoubts until Lafayette's French forces rushed in. In the meantime, Admiral de Grasse had arrived and unloaded his guns and French troops, quickly putting the French military in place. The Americans beat back the Cornwallises and their other English forces. The English Admiral Thomas Graves was blocked in at the harbor by de Grasse's vessels. Then de Barris' ships arrived and prevented any outlying vessels from sailing back out to sea. Heavily outnumbered and incurring the losses of men and equipment, Cornwallis's attempt to evacuate his troops. He wanted to move north and board the smaller English boats waiting at a small inner cape at Gloucester Point. There he planned, there he planned to board the, the ships and cross the James River in order to attack Maryland. However, a squall hit making this totally impossible. On October 19, 1781, the British surrendered the Treaty of Paris. After the surrender, official terms needed to be formulated between the Americans and Great Britain in order to state that the victory in the American Revolution would result in the British recognition of sovereignty of the states, known as the Treaty of Paris in 1783. These are a few of the key points. Great Britain acknowledges the independence of the 13 colonies, now called states. Great Britain honors the fishing rights of America to the waters off Newfoundland and the Gulf of the St. Lawrence River. Recognition that debts are owed by the 13 states and Great Britain. The states will pay restitution 
for confiscated lands legally owned by the British in America. All British prisoners of war will be released, and non-landed property, including slaves, will remain in the hands of America. Great Britain and America will have full access to the Mississippi River. Boundaries of the U.S. will include the Northwest Territory, specifically Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin, and parts of Minnesota. An honorable and honorous dinner. Even though the British had lost the war, George Washington maintained respect for their loyalty and honor in the service of their country. Likewise, he was grateful to the French. One evening, Washington invited de Rochambeau, Lafayette, and even Cornwallis to his headquarters for dinner. As they began, de Rochambeau offered a toast to the United States. Washington offered one to the King of France, and Cornwallis offered one to the King of England, after which Washington quipped, and may he stay there. All of them laughed. From that point on, Cornwallis and Washington became very close friends. George Washington, the first president. Washington thought he was at home, and he was pleased the war was over and returned home to his dear Mount Vernon and his loving wife, Martha. He loved the plantation, and he loved riding his horses. Nelson was his trusty sorrel, and he liked to take him out daily to inspect the plantation and farms. It was lovely and tranquil. There was no more pounding of mortar shells, no more cries for desperate dying men who had served him and the country at their last breath of life. Washington followed the political events of the day, including the Articles of Confederation that had been passed in 1781, by what was called the Confederation Congress that had replaced the Continental Congress. After reading the articles, Washington felt they were a rope man-made of sand. The articles were not only weak, but they left the matter of paying the provisions for the military, paying the salaries of soldiers, and paying war debt practically unenforceable. Washington keenly remembered how often he had to beg the Congress for money to support the war effort. He remembered the 680-mile march down the East Coast when his soldiers needed to be paid. Throughout the war, Washington had to borrow money from de Rochambeau, the French general, and even finance part of the war himself when he could. He wrote to a, a number of statesmen, regarding his opinions about the weakness of the Articles of Confederation. However, Washington knew he alone couldn't build the new nation. He was in his mid-fifties, had a perennial battle with rheumatoid arthritis, and was war-weary. Regardless, letters poured in from the most influential statesmen at the time, including James Madison, the young delegate from Virginia, asking that Washington attend a convention in Philadelphia. Washington knew Madison personally, as he lives nearby and occasionally visited him at Mount Vernon. Decision Year, 1787. Washington felt a sense of melancholy about the thought of breaking off his cherished retirement and politely refused the invitations. Despite that, he was elected as a delegate of Virginia. He knew he had the ability to guide this new nation but also knew that others must carry the torch after him. Then he read the reports about a rebellion started by Daniel Shays, a revolutionary soldier who hadn't been paid, 
and Washington was quite upset with that. Washington began to fear that the nation might tear itself apart due to inequities. He sent a letter to the members stating, I shall remain a bit a few days here and shall proceed to Philadelphia when I shall attempt to stimulate Congress to the best improvement of our late success by taking the most vigorous and effectual measures to be ready for an early and decisive campaign the next year. My greatest fear is that Congress, viewing this stroke is too important a point of light, may think or work too, too nearly closed and will fall into the state of languor and relaxation. To prevent this error, I shall employ every means in my power, and if unhappily we sink into that fatal mistake, no part of the blame shall be mine. The Philadelphia Convention, 1787. It was summertime when the delegates met in Philadelphia. As their first act, they unanimously elected Washington president of the assembly, and he accepted. Prior to the meeting, many of the statesmen discussed the issues related to the structure of the new nation. In one of his letters addressed to James Madison, Washington said, we are either a united people or we are not. If the former, let us in all matters of general concern act as a nation. If we are not, let us no longer act as a, act as a farce by pre pretending to do it. One of the weaknesses of the Confederation noted was that the same Washington, as same as Washington did, that is that the Articles of Confederation weren't strong enough to unite the nation. It was then decided that they wouldn't simply modify the Articles. They would discard them altogether and draw up a new document. In order to avoid alarming the states, they agreed to secrecy, even at the point of shuttering all the windows and pulling down all the shades in the sweltering heat of the Philadelphia summer. George Washington was fairly quiet during the initial sessions of the convention, as he wanted this new document to represent the opinions of its members, not merely his own. The assembly basically agreed from the onset that the new government would be split into executive, legislative, and judicial departments. The most heavily debated issues on the floor and revolved around how proportional representation of each state was going to be achieved, whether to put executive department under the leadership of one of three persons, the terms and processes of elections, impeachable offenses, the right to levy taxes, the slavery issue, the process for the appointment of judges. After that, the convention split up into the various committees of state delegates charged with discussing those issues and scheduled to return to the general floor ladder to make decisions. A number of plans were created, most of which had strong similarities. When they reassembled, the convention favored two plans, the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan. The Virginia plan rose in popularity, but rebuttals occurred when the members noted that it discriminated against smaller states. It was then decided that each state should have two senators in a bicameral Congress. Roger Sherman from Connecticut forced, forged a new document that combined the most favor elements in the New Jersey and Virginia plans and was met with overall approval in its final form. Slavery issue at the convention. Nearly one-third of the delegate states had slaves. The northern states, 
for the most part, had eliminated slavery. But in the South, many of them still existed. And in the South, nearly one-fifth of the population was slaves. Yet these states were among the wealthiest in the nation and provided food for all the other states. In fact, the entire economy of the southern states depended upon slavery. Therefore, the assembly was unwilling to eliminate the institution of slavery. One of the most contentious issues with slavery was whether or not slaves should be considered to be property or part of the populations of the states who had the slaves. If they were part of the population, that would mean that Southern representation in Congress would be higher. What was discussed, however, was whether or not slaves would be given the right to vote. It was simply assumed they didn't have the right. The delegate from Pennsylvania, James Wilson, proposed that a slave be counted as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of proportional representation of populations. This was accepted by the convention. This was called the Three-Fifths Compromise. The Constitution of the U.S. James Madison was appointed to write the initial draft of the Constitution. After much discussion and contentious debates, he made the recommendation modifications. In addition, he also wrote the Bill of Rights. The convention then accepted the final document with George Washington being the very first man to sign it. The states took a year to ratify it, and the final date attributed to the creation of the first U.S. Constitution was in 1789. From that time on, the Philadelphia Convention was later known as the First Constitutional Convention. George Washington returned to his beloved Mount Vernon following the convention, yet he knew that the nation still had a great need for him. The states each called upon their electoral delegates, and in March of 1789, George Washington was elected president. John Adams from Massachusetts was elected his vice president. In his personal, personal diary, he wrote, I bid adieu to Mount Vernon, to private life, and to domestic felicity. He then stopped at Fredericksburg, Virginia, where his terminally ill mother was residing. It was a tearful farewell, as both knew they would never see each other again. She said to him, George, fulfill the high destinies from heaven, which hath appeared to have intended just for you, and a mother's blessing will be with you always. During that same year, he had assumed the office of the presidency, and his mother died and was buried just outside of her house in Fredericksburg, Virginia. The first president of the United States. New York was the first capital of the United States under the Constitution. When Washington arrived, he was accompanied by a military and civilian parade. Thousands of people were lined up along the way, including cheering Revolutionary War veterans. The route was strewn with flowers and banners, and he reached Federal Hall in Manhattan, where a 21-gun salute would uh, greet him. Washington took the oath of office on April 30, 1789. His first responsibility was to set up a cabinet. He chose, number one, General Henry Knox, Secretary of the War. Number two, Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury. Number three, Edmund Randolph, Attorney General. And number four, Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Washington was a firm believer in a strong central government. So was John Jay, Edmund Randolph, and Alexander Hamilton. 
Knox was a soldier who believed in the rights of the soldiers, but not to the degree that he would advocate the overflow throw of those in command. Both Knox and Hamilton fought alongside Washington in the Revolution. Historians have often wondered about Washington's selection of Thomas Jefferson, who tended to prefer the rights of the people above those of the central government. However, Washington truly believed that all the voices in the country needed to be heard and likewise knew that the power of compromise was greater than a betrayal of a true liberty and freedom. Dispute over war debt. Hamilton's first assignment was to develop a plan to pay the war debt. After the revolution, the country owed $54 million, including interest. The debt was owed to foreign governments as well as the states as it was the obligation of Congress to impose taxes in order to pay it. However, the issue of the responsibility of the states to assume part of the debt was hotly debated. Hamilton's plan was to establish a borrowing mechanism by which the government could pay back the debt at lower interest rates. Because part of the debt was that due to investors, mostly Northerners, those people's people would stand to make a tremendous profit as they bought government bonds at 15 cents on the dollar. Other states like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Virginia had already paid off their war debts, but didn't want to be taxed again to help pay. Jefferson led the opposition and loudly argued with Hamilton. For as long as six months, the dispute raged. Finally, James Madison interceded and proposed a compromise. It stated that in exchange for the promise of Southern votes, Hamilton would agree to transfer the nation's capital to the south along the Potomac River when constructing a new building. It was decided that Philadelphia would serve as an interim capital. For his entire term as president, Washington had to reference debates between Hamilton and Jefferson. It was a matter that caused him much concern, but he also understood that all sides of an issue should be considered in in the interest of the independence and freedom. Washington Gravely III. During the first year as president, Washington suffered two physical ailments. The first one was caused by a virulent attack of anthrax. It was very painful and Washington felt he was going to die. His doctor indicated he could recover, but recovery may take a while. For over six weeks, he had to retire to his bedchamber and left the running of the country in the hands of John Jay as there was no set procedure for choosing someone as a replacement at the time Washington did finally recover, but was very weakened. Shortly after that, he was alerted by his doctor that he needed surgery. The historical records don't indicate the nature of his illness, other than to indicate it was a cyst. The nation was informed of the procedure, and the citizens were extremely concerned. The operation was considerably risky, but Washington survived. He was in an even weaker state when he returned to his office during the summer of 1789. At the time, Congress had drawn up a method to protect trade and charge taxes on the goods brought into the country. The federal government was in need of revenue, and this act was seen as a fair way to collect it without further burdening the states. George Washington signed the Tariff Act in July. The additional benefit of this law was to was the fact that it would almost boost domestic manufacturing, a point made clear by Alexander Hamilton by buying U.S. made products. Merchants could then resale the goods at higher prices.